Welcome to Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. We are Scott and Maureen Proctor, and we are grateful to be with you today. We'll be studying Isaiah chapters 50 through 57 in a lesson entitled, He Hath Borne Our Griefs and Carried Our Sorrows. We are so excited to be able to talk about this material. It's not often in the course of the curriculum of the church over the years that we've had five different weeks focused on Isaiah. That's exciting. And we could use five lifetimes, but we have five weeks and we're grateful for each one of them. And this is the fourth lesson of Isaiah. And we're excited to be with you today to discuss these things. And we have with us today, Jeffrey M. Bradshaw, who is one of our favorite Latter-day Saint scholars whose writing is just prolific. And I'm just going to name three or four of his books here. Um, Freemasonry and the Origins of the Latter-day Saint Temple Ordinances, which is, just came out. Um, the First Days and the Last Days, verse-by-verse -verse commentary on the Book of Moses, Enoch and the Gathering of Zion. He really understands particularly the Pearl of Great Price and uh, all the Old Testament um, implications there and implications for today and for yesterday and for ancient times. It's, it's really breathtaking to read his book. He's also the vice president of the Interpreter Foundation, which brings us so much good material. Jeff, thank you for all you do. Let's begin with a, a really key question. You have said that you feel that Isaiah chapter 53 is the crown jewel of the Old Testament. Tell us why. Yes, I'm so grateful to to be here today for this chapter because I just love it with all my heart and especially its message. And for three reasons, I guess I'd say. One is its literary beauty, both in the original Hebrew and in its English translation. You just feel the inspiration coming out of every word and every phrase. And secondly, I, Isaiah 53 plays such a key role within the writings of Isaiah, which in the New Testament and also in modern scripture uh, is the most quoted prophet. And of course, Jesus himself told us that we need to search the words of Isaiah. And I think thirdly, it's, and this is what I think will be the central message today, is its unparalleled clarity as a testimony of Jesus Christ himself. I'm very taken by how much the Book of Mormon prophets love Isaiah, and especially at the beginning when Nephi just wants to quote him again and again, and he says, he wants to bring his people to Christ, and therefore he's going to quote Isaiah. And I tried to think of it in relationship to how long it had been uh, since Isaiah had been the prophet. And it's about the same differentiation of time between Isaiah and Nephi as it is between Joseph Smith and us. I mean, it's very similar as far as the number of years goes when Nephi starts to quote him. And I was just thinking how you know, how much we quote Joseph Smith, how much we love him. He was a hundred and, you know, 140 to 180 years ago, depending on when your lifespan is, et cetera. And, and he uh, is just a favorite of ours, but I think they felt the same way about Isaiah. They're always quoting Isaiah and they, that's the prophet they think can bring you closest to Christ because they're using him as that, you know, Let's follow his words, and this will bring our children unto Christ and to the atonement of Jesus Christ. One of the things that really strikes me is those first verses of Isaiah 53, because here we read about the rejection of the Savior 
by the very people that he came to. And I think that moves me because so many do reject the Savior after he has given us everything. So let's look at some of those verses. Who hath believed our report, our report being the news that we have said that the Messiah has come, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. So he has been tenderly cared for um, by his father and put in this important mission. But it's a root out of dry ground in a difficult place. Looking at verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That idea just simply breaks my heart that we esteemed him not, that we had no desire for the Lord. And I think it's not just the people of his day, but our day as well, who find ourselves in that position. And finally, I love, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And one of those definitions of smitten and the way smitten is used usually in the Old Testament, is it's talking about leprosy. And um, someone is smitten by God, it was their belief, if they had leprosy. In other words, it wasn't a physical malady. They were actually smitten of God for something horrible that they had done. And in that culture, those who were leprous were treated so poorly. It was certainly excommunication was absolutely there. They would not be buried with their fellows. But they were isolated to a, their own area. And if anyone should see them, that's when they would hide their face from a, a leper. And, and so here we see that the Lord who has done all for us, who worked the most mighty miracles among the people, was um, stricken as if he were smitten of the Lord. And Scott and I have spent a lot of time um, among the leprosy affected. And we know that it has a number of implications. The idea is that God punished you because you deserved it. And another is that you, your family will turn you out. When we went to India, we spent some time with Becky Douglas of the Rising Star Foundation, who works with the leprosy affected. And we just could see for ourselves all the many kinds of rejection that the leprosy affected faced. And that in any way the Lord should be compared to them when he has done everything for us is, is so sad. It's so sad that the leprosy affected also had to deal with these issues. But what a way to describe the Savior. Scott, do you have any thoughts on that, having been in India with, with uh, me on this? Well, I think the thing that really moved me so much was that we've been raised with the idea of the caste system in India. We all kind of have a a distant understanding definition of the caste system. And we know there's very high levels of caste and then low levels, and then there's the untouchables. Well, the leprosy affected are below the untouchables. They're the lowest of the untouchable class. And so they are, they are anathema to their society. And it's just uh, when we relate it to the things that we are talking about here in Isaiah 53, it just, it just about takes my breath away because these are the lowest of the low. And uh, the Lord, or Isaiah, in this verse, you know, says that we esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So 
I just don't ever want to find myself esteeming him stricken or smitten of God because I, I want to turn with all my heart to him and to his atoning sacrifice. What about this chapter 53 is so moving to you? I, I think that what's moving to me about this chapter is that it really can be life-changing. Uh, many people, I think, not only despise Christ that's in there, but don't recognize that it is Christ. And we're very blessed, I think, to have the Book of Mormon uh, testify, especially the testimony of, of, of Abinadi, that this is indeed speaking of Jesus Christ. It's not speaking of the, of the Jews as a people. It's not speaking of Isaiah himself or some later prophet or entity. But this is, uh, this is him, and this is what's central to his message. Um, I think besides rejecting him because we feel that uh, he's not worthy of our esteem, which just is so incomprehensible, as you say, sometimes we reject the forgiveness and love that we should be feeling. Uh, do you mind if I read a little poem by George Herbert? So um, this George Herbert was a 17th century Welsh poet and priest who felt very deeply toward Christ. He, he was semi-mystical just because of his feeling of closeness to Christ. And in this poem, which is entitled Love, he personifies Jesus Christ as love. And so think about every time you hear the word love, think of Jesus Christ himself. He said, love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. I guessed I answered worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smilingly did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. This is a poem about the sacrament in part and, and uh, in the musical setting by Vaughn Williams. He actually uh, inserts a, a sacrament him in the Catholic Church uh, as part of the melody of this right here. And uh, it's a miracle to me that uh, Christ offers us that love and that forgiveness. And it's a reminder to me that in the sacrament, those of us who've marred our lives and marred our sight and marred uh, the lives of others can be forgiven through the love of Jesus Christ. And uh, so I pray that uh, those who study this chapter will, will come to him and be moved to accept that love and uh, get rid of any self-recrimination or feelings of unworthiness that might prevent them from taking the sacrament and partaking of his love. Yes, when, when the verses say, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Sometimes we say, I'll carry those griefs. I'll carry those sorrows because I deserve it, or because I can't really imagine that anyone could be so good as to take those pains from me. And I think this is such a reassurance that that is exactly what he did, is take those from us. And I think we can't underestimate enough, or we do underestimate all the time, how 
much the Lord can do for us. Sometimes we think that he is just there to work with us in our sins, but it's clear here that when we see that he carries our sorrows and our griefs, that's these are mental anguish. This is depression. This is anxiety. This is darkness. This is uh, despondency. These are all the things that we deal with as mortals, and he is willing to help us through and carry and release us from them. He is the the great deliverer, and he doesn't just deliver us from what we have identified as sin. He delivers us from all of these other anguishes of mortality. And that this chapter, to me, expands my view of the atoning sacrifice of the Savior. It seems our job is to believe him, believe what he tells us he can do. And sometimes, somehow, that's hard for us. Now, Jeff, you have mentioned that some people look at this and don't see Christ in these this chapter, that um, some people interpret it differently, which as Latter-day Saints, it's clear to us because we have so much revelation that fortifies that we know that this chapter is talking about the Lord. But tell us a little bit about other interpretations that some people have. Well, this is probably not the place to dwell on all the details, but but here's the story in brief. And, and I think it's important to know this because some people today challenge the interpretation of, of Jesus Christ as the Savior in, in these verses. But it's interesting that in rabbinic commentary uh, in the first centuries after Christ, uh, scholars will tell you that uh, the interpretation of these verses as referring to the Messiah in Jewish thought was almost universal up to about a thousand uh, years after Christ. Uh, no one thought of it as being anything other than Messiah. And then suddenly something changed, and it changed most likely, as scholars think, during the time of the Crusades, when uh, Jews were killed and imprisoned and their possessions were scattered uh, because they were seen as Christ killers. And during that time, alternative interpretations, alternative uh, views of that verse came up, and uh, and uh, it's... Uh, clear, though, that that was not the original view, that it was the result of these terrible acts created by Christians and some other events of that time that changed that original interpretation, which was almost universal among the Jewish people, as it was by those prophets in the Book of Mormon who quoted it, as Scott has said, Nephi and Abinadi and others. I have, in fact, gotten permission from a Jewish friend who converted to being a Latter-day Saint, and uh, speaking, going back to what um, what Maureen and Scott talked about, about how Christ can bury, how he can bear our sins and griefs, um, the permit, his, his account of his own personal life is called How a Secular Jew Living for Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll Became a Latter-day Saint Devoted to God, Family, and Country. And what's interesting to me is that his crucial conversion to Christianity came with his first encounter to Isaiah 53. Let me read you right from his uh, account. He says, Now, in a credible Christian church, I found myself reading a chapter of Jewish scripture for the first time, and it seemed to be talking about the character and life details of Jesus Christ, as very little that I knew about him. Then I read the words in verse 5, With his stripes we are healed. I stopped. This sounds awful Christian to me, I asked Mark. Are you sure those are Jewish verses you gave me to read and not Christian? 
He tells me the Jewish prophet Isaiah was born and wrote these verses hundreds of years before Jesus was born, so you wouldn't call them Christian, even if they're accepted by Christians as a prophecy of the Jewish Messiah to come. So I asked, was Jesus a verifiable historic character, not just a legend like King Arthur? Mark explained that Christian historians at the time he wrote of Jesus did write of Jesus as a renowned Jewish leader that lived and died in Israel at the same time his followers kept records of his life and teachings. So I went on reading, now assured that I'm reading Jewish verses, and that this man Jesus was a real historical figure and not just a mythical legend. As I kept reading, I saw more details I recognized to be like Jesus, what little I knew of him. A despised man of grief, brought as a lamb to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. Finally, I read, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our sorrows. A religious concept I thought was exclusive to Christianity and certainly not part of Jewish beliefs, but there it was. And then it happened. All the wild, crazy things I overdid and all the strange, deadly accidents I walked away from unhurt and all the profound questions that have been occurring to me recently. The gaining of carnal pleasures beyond the wildest dreams of most men that had ended up leaving me emotionally numb. These all came together to bring me to a point of humility that I could honestly ask, am I wrong? Have I been wrong my whole life about there not being a God and Jesus just being some smart Jewish philosopher of the Gentile world? foolishly overvalued. As I asked this question with open and honest humility, something flowed into me. It was like pure molten love, a knowledge pouring into my body, saturating my heart and mind and filling me with the answer. I am God. I know you. I love you. And Jesus is my son and your Messiah. Not in words, but in a transfer of love and knowledge to the very core of my understanding. And then I knew I knew there was a God who lives because I was feeling his presence and his love for me personally inside me and through me as it endowed me with the knowledge of his son's callings as the savior of the world. I think that's just glorious. And uh, so every time I read Isaiah 53, I think of that experience and I re-experience that only for my friend, but also personally, because I know that those verses speak of my savior who I love with the core of my being. Your wife also has a personal affinity for this chapter. Can you tell us something about that? Yeah, I think uh, I think for both of us, this is just a very choice experience to be able to testify of Isaiah 53. She uh, uh, has made it a part of her uh, daily and weekly worship. Every night before she goes to sleep, there are certain verses in Scripture she repeats to herself. Some in French, because we're trying to keep up our French language, and some in English. And among those verses and uh, ordinances that she recites to herself is Isaiah 53, especially when she takes the sacrament each week. She recites those verses about Christ taking upon us our sins and sufferings and his role as a man of sorrow to help her remember that as she covenants to obey him and to follow him in the sacrament. I think that's very beautiful. She's a wonderful woman. Marion, I was just thinking about what we were talking about this morning as we were thinking about this podcast and thinking about meeting with Jeff on Isaiah 50 through 57, but specifically our minds kept centering on this chapter 53. But I love uh, verse six where it says, and we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, you know, we, this going our own way is really an interesting thing as we look at the world today. 
people go their own way. They think that their way is better. They think that their thoughts are better. They think that they are um, being true to themselves by going their own way. And, but it's, it's looks like here that we are like sheep that have gone astray. And I love the next verse. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. This is verse seven. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. And I think, Maureen, as you and I were talking about this, we saw that this is a female reference here. A sheep before her shears is dumb. And then we started looking at a number of the references of the sheep that are brought to be sacrificed. Um, in many cases, in at least four or five verses that we found in the Old Testament, they are female without blemish. What was your thought on that, Maureen? Yes, it, it looks like those sacrificial sheep could be male or female in some instances. And the reason that female applies is because the Lord is giving birth to us. He is giving us new life. He is the anointed life giver. And it is through this crushing, you know, when it says he was bruised for our iniquities, um, in Hebrew, that is, he was crushed for our iniquities. And so he gives us new life. And so that's why it is referring here to the, or her situation, the, the female sheep, which is, which is pretty fascinating. Um, this being crushed for our iniquities takes us back to that this all happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane, of course, means place of the olive press. And to make olive oil out of olives, it entails a mighty crushing series of events. They take a rock and roll two rocks together over these um, olives. In fact, it usually will take um, some kind of an animal to walk in a circle and roll these two rocks together to crush these olives. And that's only the first part of the process. They are crushed again uh, in a different way. So there's, it's at least a two-part process to crush these olives. But um, the olive oil that comes forth from these olives gives light to this ancient Israel. There would be no light. There would be darkness. And an ancient city that was dark would be dark indeed and dangerous. So it brings light, it brings nutrition to one's entire soul. It brings um, healing. Um, Scott, you've seen that instance in your own uh, experience, and you can, might mention that when healing was such a part um, of something that it was using olive oil. And in the, in the story of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan who comes upon the man who has been left to die pours oil into his wounds. And that's another reference here to the atonement. So he's crushed for us. And the, and the result is light and peace and hope and healing. But it required his crushing. And the result is new life, life in abundance. But it came from his crushing. I remember when we were living in Turkey, um, we were in a very remote area and we came up over this rise and there was a little uh, farmer's field and this woman had just fallen and she had broken her arm with a compound fracture. Her bones were sticking out of her arm and she's sitting there bleeding in the middle of this very remote area. 
And so we had a first aid kit with us and we um, gathered it from our car and we were just heading across the field to help her. But off to our left came this old man who was riding a burrow and he was coming up and he had some sacks that were off the side of his burrow. And as he came towards the woman, we could see that we needed to yield to him. He was the medicine man of the village. And he got off his burrow and he came to the woman who was just screaming in pain. And he went to a sack that was on his burrow and he pulled out a a tall necked bottle and it was full of pure olive oil. And he came right over and he just poured it right into the wound. And the woman immediately started calming down. And I've never forgotten that scene of pouring oil into the this very severe wound. And it reminds me that when we're giving priesthood blessings and we're using olive oil, and we've talked about this in other podcasts, but when we anoint uh, our person with oil, uh, it's a symbol of the atonement. It's the symbol that we are not the healers. It's the Lord who heals, and it's his atoning sacrifice that brings us to healing. And we see that right here in Isaiah 53. Now it says in verse 9 that he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. So what exactly is that referring to? I don't think we have a definitive answer for that, but Gileadi gives uh, this verse instead as, he was appointed among the wicked in death, among the rich was his burial, referring to the wicked in death as Jesus being crucified between two thieves, and among the rich in his burial, taking to be Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And so looking at that, again, we see just very, again, striking imagery relating specifically to the events in Christ's life and his crucifixion and death. And then, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's an interesting comment. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, to bruise the Savior. I think we don't understand that that line quickly. And because I think what that means is it pleased the Lord that he would have a son so submissive and so full of love that he would do that for all of us. And so it didn't please the Lord to watch his son suffer, but it pleased him surely that he was that obedient. You know, obedience is the key. And um, if I, if you don't mind, maybe I'd like to mention one thing that uh, Maureen and Scott and I all heard in a, in a recent meeting about um, a church leader who referred to the fact that uh, he was, he really wanted people to like him. You know, he was the kind of person that wanted people to respect him and think about him well. And uh, one time in prayer, he went back uh, to the Lord and the Lord told him, I don't want you to be necessarily liked by people. I want you just to do my will. It brings me back to this, this notion of wandering sheep, you know, but just because we're wandering doesn't mean we're wandering uh, aimlessly and not following somebody. De- Doctrine and Covenants 116 says, they seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way. And after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world and whose substance is that of an idol, which waxes old and shall perish in Babylon, even Babylon the great, which shall fall. And I think it's a characteristic of our time, not that we're leaderless, not that we're uh, wandering uh, completely without following someone. 
but that we're not following Christ. We're not willing to be submissive. And sometimes we want people to like us more than we want to do the will of the Lord, which is sometimes very hard to do in today's society. Yeah, we are taught in today's society that the most authentic thing to do is to follow whatever seems to come naturally to our being, whatever seems to be the natural, easy expression of who we think we are. Um, And this is just simply not true. I mean, um, in the world that I grew up in not that long ago, um, spiritual maturity and objective truth was something to find and seek and live up to and to work for and to work to live up to. It wasn't uh, be whatever you are and that's sufficient. And there's something really lost in in that. Uh, we were hearing the story the other day about school and um, they were saying that uh, 20 years ago, little Johnny at school flunks his test and the parents would come in and talk to the teacher and say, what can we do to help little Johnny? And little Johnny would be in maybe some trouble with his parents. But today, if little Johnny flunks his test, the parents come in and say to the teacher, what's wrong with you? What did you do? What did you do wrong that my son should flunk? And we've changed the idea that there is something beyond ourselves to live up to. Rather, we should be entitled to whatever, whatever position, whatever we believe, um, even if it's wrongheaded, even if it leads us right into the wall and smashes us up against that wall. So it, it's an interesting thing. And, and, you know, the Lord says more about that in chapter 55 here of Isaiah For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I I love that because it suggests that I need to ask some questions about things I take for granted and believe about based on my desires and my wants and whatever is easier. And understand that the way the Lord thinks about things is very, very different than I think about things. I I love that because I see today the idea that people embrace something that they say is good and that I think the Lord would say is just the opposite than good. I think so often we as mortals look upon the work of the Lord and we seem to have questions about how he does things or what he's doing or sometimes we'll say well i know the lord knows what he's doing which kind of intimates that we don't know but he knows and i think that is an act of faith or a statement of faith Uh, but sometimes i think that we um we have to realize that the lord gives directions commandments guidance revelation but he often doesn't give explanation and uh, I think that we need to learn to follow his counsels, like you were saying, Jeff, about that one leader who heard from the Lord, I, I just need you to do my will. And I think if we all had that in our minds, uh, that the Lord just wants us to do his will, that would certainly alleviate a lot of problems in our lives and a lot of problems in the world, uh, and especially in this world we're in. Well, and it would be the smallest way we could um, at least 
show the Lord that we are aware that he was crushed for our iniquities if we try to grow beyond them and take wonderful advantage of the repentance that he offers. I would like to just look for a second, and Jeff, I'd love to have your thoughts on this as well, but just in Isaiah 52, uh, verses 1 and 2, uh, it's quoted often, but I love this uh, language. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust, arise, and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. This is a very uh, last day's call to come to Zion and to come to the holy city of Jerusalem. What are your thoughts about those two verses or anything that you've learned in your studies? I agree with you that those verses are very apropos to the era in which we live. Uh, on the one hand, the daughter of Zion, which represents all of us as children of Zion, are asked to uh, loose ourselves from the bands of wickedness and the bands that the world has put upon us, right? So it's a call to renounce Babylon, as it were, isn't it? And uh, we are in that position. And it's a reminder also that the Lord intends to make Zion glorious, which means making each one of us glorious, which ultimately refers to the blessings of the temple and of exaltation, which he promises for each one who, uh, who promises to follow in his ways. And in a way, it's a reminder that each one of us is to follow the, the, the Lord in what we do. You know, we, we uh, appreciate the Lord's sacrifice, and certainly he did things that we could not do for ourselves. But in our small way, we're asked also to be wounded, to suffer for the transgressions and woundings of others and to bear the burdens of others, aren't we? The book of Mosiah, of course, asked that explicitly. The other day I was talking to somebody who had been rejected by their family, mostly because they had been faithful or were trying to be faithful to the covenants of the Lord. And they were blaming themselves for for that grief that they were going through, whereas they were being, I think, Christ-like, and which is what the Lord calls us all to do in bearing the sufferings and bearing the transgressions of others in order to follow Christ in his example, which we're all called to do as Latter-day Saints. I've always thought the line, shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down, to be interesting, that arise and sit down. So that is arising from bondage, arising from dust, arising from what we have chosen that means nothing, that comes to nothing, and sit down instead in a holy place. Could I build on that, Maureen? So Jeff Lindsay, I, I remember now that he's written quite a bit on this theme. Uh, and, and it turns out that that language uh, going along with the temple theme there is literally royal language. So the king or the queen in this case, arises from the dust, shakes off the, the, the dirt and dust and, and, uh, of the world. And then when they sit down, they are sitting down in essence on a throne. They're taking their rightful place to rule as opposed to being persecuted. So it's, it's an imagery of kingship throughout the whole ancient Near East. And obviously that means a temple imagery. Yeah, that is so beautiful. That I love that verse 3 in chapter 52 that says, 
ye have sold yourselves for naught. Boy, don't you think it would be awful to sell yourself for naught? And I think that involves not only evil and wickedness, but triviality, just staying in shallow places when the Lord invites us to have so much more. But ye shall be redeemed without money. And that's what we've been talking about here with chapter 53 today. I just want to look for one second at Isaiah 54, because the first two verses of this, Nephi also loved these verses. The the Savior thought they were so important that he also quoted them. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. This is a very inclusive kingdom, a very inclusive Zion that's bringing in people that aren't just the birthright children. They are the adopted ones. They're the believers. They're the ones who accept the atoning sacrifice of the Savior. In fact, the numbers are greater for those who do accept from outside that lineage than they are the uh, children of the married wife. And I think that's always impressed me and that we're to strengthen our stakes. This is a tent reference, but it's also for the last days, it's an injunction unto all of us to strengthen our stakes, literally words and stakes, that kind of stake, that we strengthen our stakes, that this is where Zion is gathering is in the stakes throughout the world. And that's the place of habitation, the place of safety, the place where we have priesthood keys that are extended to bless each of us in our lives in these very tumultuous times. What's interesting about that, too, is that's not just a reference to a tent alone, though a tent, the the rising of a tent in the desert for these people of the desert was a very big deal. Um, But it's also a reference to the tabernacle in the wilderness that had stakes that held it down. And so we enlarge the stakes and strengthen the stakes by inviting people to the temple to, to make covenants. And I love the way the Lord wants all to be a part of it. And he says, Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shall not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. The Lord wants to lift us from all our grief in every particular. So those messages in chapter 53 are just strewn through these other chapters that Isaiah writes, and that is that the Lord is so good and so saving for all of us. You know, I think uh, the thought occurred to me as we talked about stretching out the tent of Zion, uh, that we live in a time where all of us in one way or another feel somewhat stretched. I know I feel it sometimes, even though I'm not uh, at all um, dealing with some of the problems that many people in the world are. I feel like this is a stretching and a trying time. And yet when I look at uh, the prophecies that were given us in Isaiah, including the Messianic and the Uh, last days prophecies we've just reviewed, what a great thing it is to be trusted to live in the last days and to be able to look back retrospectively and saying that those promises that the ancient prophets saw afar off and didn't get to see them realized in their lifetime, that many of us will get to witness those things in our day. 
the glorious reward which is promised at the end of Isaiah 53 for the Savior and all his spiritual descendants that we hope we can become through following him. I express my gratitude to the Lord and my testimony of the Savior, especially in the words of this beautiful gem of the, of the scriptures in Isaiah 53. And I'm grateful to be part of this last work in the last days, and I commit my soul, my whole heart, to my Savior who I love. And I'm so grateful for what he's done for me. That's all for today. We've loved being with you and hope that you've been able to gain some insights into these chapters of Isaiah. We're especially grateful to our guest today, Jeffrey Bradshaw, who has been so insightful and is a great friend of ours. And we've loved this discussion back and forth on these chapters, but specifically we felt to focus on Isaiah 53. Thank you, Jeff, for your joining us. Next week, we'll be studying Isaiah chapters 58 through 66 in a lesson entitled, The Redeemer Shall Come to Zion. Thanks as always to Paul Cardall for the music which accompanies this podcast and especially to our producer, Michaela Proctor Hutchins. Have a great week and see you next time.